This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 9, Episode 21. This is Writing Excuses, Sanderson's Third Law. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm unable to remember the second law. All right. Well, we'll second law you can Google. Okay. Um, Sanderson's third law. So I have these sort of rules for mag- magic systems that I use to help me write better magic systems. I name them Sanderson's uh, laws partially out of hubris, but partially because they are laws I have learned about my own writing. Um, and it's not necessarily that people need to follow these laws, but when I am writing, I ask myself these things, and they have helped me create better writing. They're specifically about magic systems, but I feel that each of them applies to writing in really um, more broad senses. And so Sanderson's third law is that a writer should expand what they already have before adding something new. This is, in essence, me realizing that as a writer, I was trying to create deep, immersive worlds for my world building. And my first instinct was to therefore create lots of stuff. Because if there's lots of stuff, your world will feel bigger and more immersive. And what I found is that the stories that where I wrote lots of stuff actually felt less immersive and less large than the stories where I created a couple of things and really seriously considered the ramifications and worked very deeply to... Um, create a magic system that I had explored. And so I started using this rule for myself. Instead of inventing a new part of a, a magic power, I would say to the magic powers I have right now, can I dig deeper into those? Instead of creating a second culture, I say, what does this culture that I have What are the ramifications if a splinter branch of that starts their own culture because of that, which is what really happens in our world a lot. And then this forces me to what I call dig deeply rather than to build widely. You know, at risk of uh, (laughs) derailing us early with, you know, an extension into another field, this is the thing that was wrong with uh, most of the music that I wrote when Mm. I was a musician. Uh, I would write something, you know, catchy and infectious and interesting and two and a half minutes long and then move on to making something else. When what I needed to do was take that melody and refine it and do some variations on it and, and alter it and really explore what I had created in that piece of music. Never got around to doing it with music figured out how to do it with comics. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's, it's critically important that you, mm-hmm. go, that you go deep rather than going wide because that's where, that's where all the interesting stuff is. There, I, can't, I wish I could remember which science fiction writer said this, but that if you introduce any piece of technology into a science fiction story, you should use it more than once and in different ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly what we're talking about right here. And the, the thing about it is I... I I figured it out for magic systems. And one of the points where I realized I was straying into a wrong path and I needed to, this law needed to help me, was when I was talking about the Stormlight Archive before it came out and I was working on it in the outline. And, you know, I, in the Mistborn series, quote unquote, had three magic systems, right? 
And it was this idea of, oh, I, bigger is better, right? And so when fans come say, tell me about the new series, I'd say, oh, it has 30 magic systems or something like this. And there they'd be like, wow, that's mind blowing. When as I was sitting down and looking at it, I'm like, 30 magic systems, who cares? Yeah. One mm -hmm. good magic system is better than 30. This happens in films. Um, where you get the, the sequel problems. The Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man films had this problem where it's you've got one great villain, now we're gonna do two villains, and then the third movie became a famously um, all over the place because the studio said you have to have this villain, they wanted to add this villain, they wanted to add this villain, and so they have the bigger mentality. We have three villains, but then you can't dig into each of them Mm -hmm. as well as you did the f any of the first ones, and you have a weaker story. Yeah, that's funny because one of the, uh, a friend of mine who teaches screenwriting says that mm -hmm. the number one common, most common screenwriter mistake is that when a writer is stuck, they introduce new characters. Mm. And, wow, yeah. And, and, you know, that that it's much better to look at the characters you already have. Yeah, that's how I got into the mess I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, I, I, I'll own up to that, the... The, the pool of characters in Schlock Mercenary is as big as it is because I would get stuck and I would want to, I would want to get out of getting stuck by introducing a POV and so I'd pull in a new character. This is actually a, a, a I won't call it a problem. It is an issue with working in something very long form. Mm. Uh, you will find that this is the case that people talk about Robert Jordan and George R. R. Martin in these same ways saying, wow, the cast has gotten so big, and I can totally see as a writer working on something, you, you run into this, this issue where my main character's been through so much, I can't really le legitimately put them through any, anymore, so I add new characters to, to put through things like this, and then that balloons your story and introduces problems. Now, this can be awesome. It could create these enormous casts, but you as a writer have to realize this comes at a cost. Yeah. Um, and at some point, you have to say, let me end the story and start a new one, as opposed to trying to keep your story fresh by adding new characters and ballooning. Now, yeah, I'm not can, saying that's what you did. Right. I know, but let me... The, yeah. Uh, I, I say, you know, I need to own up to the problem. I've known this was a problem for years, and what I started doing is every time I launched a new book mm -hmm. online, um, I would make a clear delineation in my head uh, so that when we start this book... I, anytime a character walks on screen, I'm introducing that character as if I'm introducing them for the first time so that people know who it is. Right. And they have to have a reason to participate in the story. Yeah. Um, what I have found since then, uh, and this was, uh, you know, people talking in, uh, you know, some of the community posts, um, they were trying to figure out who the protagonist of Schlock Mercenary was. I said, well, what a silly, what a silly question that why would there just be one? Well, but it's one story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, what have my careless hands wrought? Um, and so recently, I built a bunch of new header images that help that hopefully, helpfully define the beginnings and ends of books right. in the web archive, so that people get this sense of we are done with that story. There is closure. Mm -hmm. It is time to start something new. Hopefully. And that allows me now to go deep instead of having to cover all of these right. zillions of different bases. Yeah. Now, the converse of this is mm -hmm. that when you're going deep, you also have to be careful that you don't go into just one hole because that right. will provoke a claustrophobic yeah. 
yeah. sensation, whether you're dealing with characters, and it, it can create the sense of, of monoculture yep. if you're only doing one thing. Mm -hmm. You had a, Howard, you had a good analogy when you were talking about uh, archaeology? Oh, yeah. The, um, well, and I got it from a music professor, so again, the, the double metaphor mixing. Uh, music analysis guy who said we're going to analyze four pieces in a lot of detail and then we're going to cover you know another dozen or so pieces uh, in just a little bit of detail because if you're doing geologic survey you don't want to dig one you know one really deep hole and you don't want to dig a thousand really shallow holes you want to dig a few deep holes and some shallow holes so you can get a sense of what the surface is like and have some deep samples from some different areas. Yeah, so when you're dealing with, when you're applying that to writing, then what you're basically looking at is you've got a couple of things that you explore in depth, mm -hmm. but you reference larger things. Lots of things. other things. Yeah. Then that gives you that sense of you've done three cultures really deeply. When you reference the rest, then the reader can say, oh, these cultures must be as deep mm -hmm. because everyone's talking about them this way. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's go ahead and stop for the book of the week, though. Um, our book of the week this week is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. I recently um, listened to this book on audiobook, and this is a really interesting one to promo because I talked about the fact that it is the best boring book I've ever read. <laughs> um, and it was fascinating. I couldn't stop listening, even though not a lot happens in this book. Um, it is a world-building book. When, it, when I realized this is about the setting and the language, more than anything else, then I just sat back and enjoyed the setting and the language. It was just an absolute blast. It was wonderful. I don't think I would have enjoyed this book nearly to the extent I, I did if it hadn't been read to me. Um, the uh, narrator did a fantastic job with the, the different voices and also just with the tone and the setting of it. And so I highly recommend the audiobook in specific of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. If you aren't familiar with it, it's um, this idea that magic is real. Um, it's Napoleonic Wars era. Magic has always been real. Um, but for some reason, magic left England a number of years ago. And all now that we have are theoretical magicians, which is, you know, a profession that a, a nobleman will take up, just like, you know, having a hobby in any sort of area. And then a real magician comes onto the stage, having discovered some of the things that, that you know, that he's practical, he's practicing, and nobody knows what to do with it. Um, and and it is it is a lot of fun and the, it is uh, beautifully narrated. Audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a 30-day free trial membership. Support your favorite writing podcast or writing excuses if we're not your favorite writing <laughs> podcast. And download a copy of Jonathan Strange and Dr. Morell. Mr. 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 Norell. Mr. Norell, Mr. Yep. Norell I'm sorry. That's I, all right. Morell is a mushroom. Yeah. Uh, I was almost, I was going He's to Dr. More Moreau and book. that's even worse. <laughs> right. So. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Mm -hmm. And who was the author? Uh, it is by Susanna Clark. By Susanna Clark. And, and you can get it for free. Mm -hmm. Time Book's Book of the Year. It's a fantastic the year it came book. Out. I um, was so 
so depressed when it came out because it came out right before. Right, and you were uh -huh. doing some of yeah. the same thing. Um, but it's, they're, 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 they're very nothing, different. nothing alike aside from being in the same era. I want to bring this discussion back towards specifically magic systems. Yes. Because it can apply to yes, a lot yes. of things. And I want this podcast to talk about the idea of magic systems and and going deep with your magic systems, so to speak. Because it is for me... Can I use science yeah. systems as well? Science systems as well. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But I love... Specifically, Glamour in your books is a great example of going deep on a magic system rather than going wide. You could have invented 40 different arts that magic did in this world. And instead, you took Glamour and you really started to ask, what are the different ramifications of this as a new branch of art that exists in the world? Yeah, and one of the things that I'm, I'm also doing uh, in in, of noble family is I'm looking at how that magic system plays out in different parts of the world. Right. So because just because you have one magic system in mm -hmm. one world does not mean that everybody is going to use it in exactly the same way any more than everybody uses paint in exactly the same right. way. And so for me, this is again an example of of going deep, but going deep with multiple holes. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of what I do when I'm doing this is look at kind of how people react to things in general in the real world as a model for how to for, for how they react to new technologies which is magic in in my world and what are the cool things I can do with it and whether or not I can allow them to for instance in Valor and Vanity I had them using technology and I realized that if I are using magic mm -hmm. and I realized that if I let them use glamour in this particular way I would have invented telephone right which changes everything right. yep. and I, I was like I can't I can't have that and so there was a place where I actually had to fill the hole in a little bit right <laughs> where I'm um, when I'm developing magic for a story uh, my primary goal is to say you know, number one, how is this going to affect the characters and the conflict? Mm -hmm. That's that's where I'm going. But I also want to say, all right, how is the culture adapted to this yes. magic? How have different cultures adapted to this magic? What, by changing some fundamental laws of physics, what have I done to how science is going to progress? Um, and all of these different things. If you are doing a magic system, asking yourself these sorts of things and allowing yourself to take different spins off of this one little change that you can make to the world will honestly make your magic in your world feel much more fully realized than just adding a ton of new things. Yeah. This is what we did in the partials series with mm. the link. Oh yeah. The partials use a system of pheromonal communication to talk to each other. And when my editor and I were first putting together the series, we were trying to figure out what can make the partials fundamentally different. They had to be, you know, they look like people, they act like people, they had to be alien in some way. And we came up with so many different ideas and over time realized all we really needed was the link. Because once we considered all those ramifications, you know, this changes how they talk to each other. This changes how they talk to humans. This changes how they perceive each other. And by the third book, you know, it, it essentially is a magic system. I've been telling right. people on tour that Ruins is an epic fantasy disguised as a post-apocalyptic novel because we just took this one element of the link and followed it as far down the rabbit hole as we could. The schlock mercenary universe, the economics of it, um, energy is cheap. Mm. Um, and with energy being as cheap as it is, 
uh, a lot of things should be cheap. So why aren't things why aren't mm -hmm. things less expensive? And uh, and there's the uh, there's the scientific theory that uh, there are some islands of stability in mm -hmm. the high numbered atomic elements. And I went ahead and ran with that because that gave me what I call post transuranics. Yes. Really expensive to create heavy elements that allow us to create, you know, armor compounds and whatever else. And then I looked at how expensive it is for us to create an atom of Lorentzium. The amount of energy we have to we have to expend to slam these things together. And I realized that the things that we've been you know that these warships have as uh, as you know power plant materials are super expensive to create, and the more I dug into that, the more I realized that uh, that the whole the whole idea of energy budget could actually drive plot line uh, motivation, lots of things in the Schlock Mercenary universe, all the way up to the end of the series. Uh, and it all grew out of this idea that uh, let me take something that I haven't looked at closely and and drill down and start coming up with answers and more questions. And actually, the, the energy budget is something that will apply to pretty much any magic system yep. as well. There's the personal energy toll. There's the, uh, yep. the economic toll. How can it be? How can magic or science be commodified? Uh, how can it be misused? You know, it's... If it's cheaper than having the donkey do it, what happens to the donkeys? Yep. Now, I, I do want to offer here what you're trying to avoid, all right, what this is going to do, because I have a counterexample, but it's, it's a counterexample of um, I'm going to use role-playing game systems. For anyone who's playing a role-playing <laughs> game system, their goal for that system is not to create an immersive real world. Their goal is to play, create a fun world for you to game in. And so if you go to a lot of the classic gaming systems, they have 40 magic systems, right? And you can pick the one you want to play because it's going to be fun to do something different. And they, you want to avoid your fantasy novel feeling like that because that works really well for the game system. But, you know, you play the game system. Anyone who's, who's done like D&D knows, you know, the economy makes no sense. You know, the adventurers go in and they find these plus one swords, right? Which are basically useless to them by the time they're third or fourth level. And they're throwing these things around. You come back with 20 of them because, you know, the, you have to have enemies to fight that have legitimate threats. Um, and these things are worth a thousand gold pieces. And then you go look what a gold piece is worth. It's like a year's wages for, you know, a, a laborer. And you're like, this economy is ridiculous, but the economy exists to make the game fun to play. You have to make sure your magic isn't breaking reality for the reader in that way because your book is about immersion and about the story being real. You're not building an MMORPG. You're yes. building an MMRB. Yes. Massively multi-reader book. <laughs> but it's important to, to point out Mm -hmm. that your final goal as an author is to entertain. Yes, yes. There, there is that. And so don't get buried. I mean, if you're yeah. writing hard science fiction, then yes, that's what your audience wants. Right. But don't go so far into the realism that you're not interesting anymore. I warned people, Sanderson's zeroth law is err on the side of what's awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that has, to, that has to overshroud each of these other laws. Pick what's awesome, then make it work. Pick, pick what's Nivens, fun. In Larry Niven's End Space, mm -hmm. he posted the outline for the destruction of his known space universe, which grew out of the fact that he sat down and drilled into 
the slaver stasis technology and the puppeteer hull technology and realized his whole universe just needed to burn because it was no longer uh, it no longer made sense. And so he wrote an outline in which it did burn. And then his editor said, hey, this ring world idea, you should put it in known space. And so he went with the rule of awesome. Right. Yeah. And, and this is this is one of those places where, you know, you del- drill into the hole and then you think, maybe I'm just going to drag a tarp over that. <laughs> I don't right. like what's at the bottom of this one. Yeah. You delve too deep and you get a bell rug. So watch out. <laughs> <laughs> Howard. You have a writing prompt. Okay. Um, you have a magic system in which you are actually digging holes. And the the depth of the holes versus the breadth of the holes versus where you are digging governs the output of your magic. Go All right. and cast dirt. <laughs> and maybe you'll find Sheila Buff or whatever you say his name is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been, how do you say his name? Shia. 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 Shia? Yeah. He's in, I don't know yeah. why we're even saying his name. Yeah, because he was in Great. holes. Now we're oh, he was in holes. Oh. Doomed. So doomed. <laughs> we can been, stop now, right? Writing <laughs> excuses. Uh, you might have a few excuses, but go right anyway. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, And I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 